Well, today we are concluding our series on the Protestant Reformation. Uh, During the month of October, we have looked at several people, or a couple people rather. We looked at two pre-reformers, John Wycliffe and John Huss. We made a lot of allusion to uh, Martin Luther. And today, what I want us to do is look at the teaching that has come from the Reformation. Last week, we saw Rome's view of justification versus the biblical view. This was the article upon which the church would rise or fall, according to Martin Luther. And so as we celebrate Reformation Day, which is really tomorrow, we are reminded of Martin Luther nailing his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel Church. And when he did this, this was actually to provoke discussion. It was to provoke debate concerning the papal indulgences. It was also an invitation for them to debate these ideas. But they weren't interested in that. In fact, a month earlier, Luther wrote a thesis on the topic of scholastic theology. And it was that thesis along with the 95 theses that were intended to invite discussion. But if you know anything about Rome, they don't want to talk about anything that would challenge anything that they believe. The truth is today. They're not interested in being corrected. They haven't been interested in that in the entire time that they've been in existence. But you know, when you read his thesis, you you find several things with it. First of all, you find the tone of it is actually humble rather than academic, though academics is certainly there because he was a professor. And this was the common way that uh, events and news was made known to the people. Uh, The church door was the community bulletin board. And nailing something to the door was not really that dramatic, It was actually the invention of the printing press that allowed this to be spread. It was written in Latin, but then it was translated into German. And through the printing press, it was mass copied and distributed all over Europe. And even at the beginning when this came about, the Pope wasn't concerned with it. Until that day finally came, he showed concern. And the concern that he was showing was for Luther to recant. His famous statement was, Here I stand, I can do no other. And you probably know the entire statement that he made as he was called to recant. The teachings in his book, as well as the other things that he was teaching, and he said that he cannot recant. Was it good for conscience? And he also wanted them to show them from Scripture and from plain reason why he must recant, where his errors lie in that document. When you look at the first two theses of the 95 Theses, it really gives us his central idea, and that was that God intended believers to seek repentance and that faith alone, not deeds, would lead to salvation. Uh, The other 93 theses uh, was a number of them directly criticizing the practices of indulgences 
And this supported the first two. Rome came up with this idea of these indulgences so that it could finance its work. But essentially what it was doing was buying salvation. That kind of reminds you of Acts 8. In Acts 8, there was a man that had seen the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, and he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? And you remember Peter's response. He said, you perish with your money because you thought that you could buy the gift of God. It's not for sale. And if we could buy it, then what was the point of Christ's death? What was the point of him going to the cross? Now, I know you see behind me a a title. It says, 95 Reasons Why I Am Reformed. And you're probably thinking, is he going to go through each of the 95 theses, each point? Uh, No, I'm not going to do that. But the title is actually more than that. I've had a lot of time to think about this, as I have each week when we've been looking at a reformer or a pre-reformer. What I want to talk about is really an overall summary of what the Reformers taught. What they taught then, what they taught 102 years later, what they teach now, what we affirm today. And so I've reduced it to two main points. You'll be thankful for that. But I didn't tell you that my second point... My second main point has ten points. But they'll go quick. It's not something new to you. You've heard this before. And rather than answer what it means to be reformed, I'm just going to let what I share with you today to define that. We identify as a reformed Baptist church. We know we understand the Baptist part because we believe in total immersion and adult baptism. Uh, But it's the reform part that some are still trying to understand. And so instead of us looking at 95 points of debate, we're going to look at 10 major teachings that came forth from the Reformation. So here's my two major points. I am reformed because, number one, it is biblical. And number two, it preaches the true gospel. Let's talk about the biblical part. Those are the main reasons, as I said, why we refer to ourselves as a Reformed Baptist church. Because this is biblical and this preaches the true gospel. What developed later from the Protestant Reformation came ten major doctrines. They are total depravity, unconditional election, Limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christos, sola Deo gloria. I remind you that the solas were Latin, and it referred to alone. You have scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Three of the five solas were used by Martin Luther. The rest were taught over time. The first five that I mentioned are commonly referred to as the doctrines of grace. 
or you may have heard them as the five points of Calvinism. These were affirmed 102 years after the Protestant Reformation, and they were not put together by Calvin. They were put together on May 9, 1619. But to understand the five points in the history and where they come from, you've got to go back to 1610. This is one year after the death of James Arminius. His followers drew up five articles of faith based upon his teachings, and they were these. Free will, conditional election, universal atonement, resistible grace, and falling from grace. They took these five articles and presented them to the state of Holland in the form of a protest. The followers of James Arminius, who were commonly known as Armenians, insisted that the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism, which was the official expression of the doctrinal position of the churches of Holland, be changed to conform to the doctrinal views contained in this protest. So a national synod was called to meet in Dort in 1618 for the purpose of examining the views of Arminius in light of Scripture. And so this great synod was convened by the State General of Holland on November the 13th, 1618 with 84 members and 18 secular commissioners. Included were 27 delegates from Germany and also from the region of Germany in Switzerland and England. There were 154 sessions held during the seven months that the Senate met together to consider these matters, and the last meeting was on May 9, 1619. And the five articles of faith that were presented by the Armenians were unanimously rejected. And as a part of their rejection, the synod produced the five points of Calvinism. Again, this was not John Calvin that produced this. In fact, you'll find in much of his writings... When he talks about predestination, he talks actually very little about it. When you look into his works like the Institutes. But as we begin this morning, I want to go through each of them and, and just give you a summary of them. Now, my plan is to, to work through every one of them, so let's just see how that goes. But every one of these are biblical. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here saying anything about it. And if the Reformed faith wasn't biblical, I wouldn't have anything to do with it either. But there are things here that, that we affirm wholeheartedly, and the first one is this, total depravity. Total depravity actually teaches that man is completely helpless in his sinful state. And he's under the wrath of God, and he can in no way please God. Again, I remind you, that's your natural state. That's... The state you're in when you're born, you are totally depraved. It affects every aspect of your life. It affects you mentally, and it, it fleshes itself out in your life and in your living and in your views and, and in your decision-making. Now, I have to say this. That we're not talking about absolute depravity, that we're as bad as we can be. We don't operate 
that way. People that do do that do these wicked, evil things, and, and the government has to intervene. But we have restraint. And I praise God for that restraint. But it seems like some restraint's being lifted right now, doesn't it, in our world? Man will not and cannot seek to know God unless grace prompts him to do so. To put it another way, the Bible teaches that as a result of Adam's fall, the entire race is affected. All humanity is dead in trespasses and sins. Man is unable to save himself. I mean, just think about that. That's Ephesians 2.1, by the way. I said that this is biblical, so I definitely want to show you in Scripture. But Ephesians 2.1 says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. There he's speaking to the Ephesian believers. He's talking about their past experience. They are not dead in trespasses and sins now, because verses 4 and 5, God showed his love and mercy by granting them eternal life and making them alive to himself. But man in his natural state is dead. To me, that answers a lot of these issues. If you're dead, you can't do anything about it. You're totally incapable of changing that state. Now, there are people that, that teach, and one of the former pastors that was here taught this, that God looks down through the quarter of time. He sees who's going to believe. And therefore, based upon that, he chooses them. You can't find that taught anywhere in Scripture. What that does is make man sovereign instead of God being sovereign. Man in his natural state is dead. And not only is he dead, and what that means is simply this. Genesis 6-5 says that he's wicked. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. This is what eventually brought about the judgment of God, uh, the worldwide flood that destroyed the entire earth and all the creatures in it except for eight people. And not only is man's natural state wicked, but his heart is deceitful. Because he doesn't see that natural state. In fact, he sees he's much better than I'm saying this morning. But Jeremiah said it this way, Jeremiah 17, 9, he said, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick or desperately wicked, and who can understand it? I read a verse like that, I have to think about counseling sessions because in counseling sessions, what is the counselor trying to do with the counselee? He's trying to draw things out of their heart. And what this verse is telling me that the heart is so desperately wicked that he can deceive with the heart. And the heart deceives them. And yet we live in a world today that wants to be driven by the heart. And what we need to be driven by is truth. Objective truth. Not what you think is true, but what the standard is, God's truth. And since man is wicked in his natural state, and since he doesn't really seek after God, 
Romans 3.10, by the way, puts it this way, saying that he doesn't understand or seek for God. It says in Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There's the picture that's painted of the entire human race apart from Christ. Man is wicked. Man can't seek God in his natural state. Man's heart is desperately wicked. Jesus even talked about those wicked, evil things that come out of the heart. You wonder why people do the things that they do. It's coming from that wicked heart. And so in the Protestant Reformation, this brought to light what the Bible teaches and has always taught because you can actually define each of the five points of the doctrines of grace in every book of the Bible, Old and New Testament. We won't take the time to do that this morning. Because I have uh, nine more points, so let's go ahead and go to the second one. In fact, if you want to remember the first five, people usually refer to it as TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, and use the acrostic there. So the second one would be in TULIP, unconditional election. And that basically means God chooses whom he will save. In fact, since I have been making reference to, to Ephesians, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, many of these things find their heart right there, but usually when we talk about election, we do refer back to Ephesians 1.4, which says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. And the idea of that He chose us means that He picked out, He selected And it's used in the middle voice, which means he chose us for himself. It indicates God's totally independent choice. And if you want to get mad about that, get mad at God about it. But it's a dangerous thing to even do that. God has decided from eternity past who he would save. He doesn't look down through this period of time and see how man's going to respond to hearing the gospel. I contend that man can't respond unless God does some things first. Because again, I remind you that the underlying premise is man's deadness in his sins. That makes it difficult to respond because you're dead. We've all been to funerals. We all witnessed the death of a loved one or a death of a friend. We've all understand that, death of animals. We see the ceasing of life, and and, and we know that when it dies, nothing else can happen. I know we sign, do not resuscitate things in the hospital, have a living will, and so forth. And whether they tried to resuscitate you or not, whether you had that or not, it's up to the Lord whether you're going to live. He controls life and death, just as He controls spiritual life and spiritual death. But we see this uh, traced in other aspects, like Acts thirteen forty eight, when Paul had preached to the Jews and they just kept rejecting and rejecting and rejecting the gospel and persecuting him because of that. 
He turns to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, when they heard this, Acts 13, 48, they began rejoicing. And they were glorifying the word of the Lord. And then the last part of the verse says this, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. John Piper says, Election is a condition for faith. Some people try to read it around the other way, saying faith is a condition for election. Oh yeah, there are churches that have views of election, but it's not this one. Piper goes on to say it's because God chose us before the foundation of the world that He purchases our redemption at the cross and He quickens us with irresistible grace and brings us to faith. That shouldn't surprise you. I mean, if you look into John 15, you hear the Lord Jesus Christ say this to His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And from a human aspect... What did they think? They chose Him. What is the human aspect in your salvation that you think? You chose God. You repented. You believed. You surrendered. My contention is, you couldn't do that without divine help. Because if you're dead in trespasses and sins, there's nothing good in you that will enable you to do that. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that was responsible for it. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, he said he kept bearing in mind their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said in verse 4, when he saw all that, he knew that they were the elect of God. He saw the evidence of that. And the same is true for us today. That's the only way that you and I can see evidences of that. We, we can't go around and find out who's the elect. We have no way to know. God hasn't disclosed any of that to us. But all we can see is the results. We see the effects of conversion. We see what happens in a life being transformed. Over in 2 Thessalonians, he referred to it again. In chapter 2 and verse 13, he said, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God did this from the beginning. What beginning? Well, if you go back to Ephesians 1, look at verse 4. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The word foundation there, the word itself means to throw down. It's a throwing down or a laying down. It describes God throwing down a universe into space. It describes him speaking a material universe into existence which had no existence before. God made everything out of nothing. We hear this phrase also used in Matthew 25, 34 where Jesus tells us that the kingdom was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And again, I remind you about the Gentiles that believe they were what? Appointed. So that talks about a prior initiation by God. 
Even God's plan of salvation in Jesus was before the foundation of the world. We looked at this when we were going through 1 Peter, but let me remind you of it. 1 Peter 1.20 says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And the idea of foreknowledge, proskonosko, it, it means to know beforehand, to know in advance. You think God knows everything in advance? Sure he does. You think that Adam and Eve sinning in the garden was a surprise to God? No, it wasn't. In eternity past, before Adam and Eve sinned, God planned to redeem sinners through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father did not react to the fall with a last-minute fix. He predetermined to send His Son. It's like Peter said in Acts 2.23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godly men and put Him to death. He gives us two aspects of here. They killed the Messiah, but God predetermined this. I mean, all throughout the Gospels, you would hear Jesus say, Now it's not my time. It's not my time. It's not my time. He knew the time. Later, you hear the apostles when they were praying in Acts 4, in verse 27, they prayed this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, we look at evil and wicked people doing these wicked and evil things, but we see in the predetermined plan of God, this was sovereignly already decided before the creation of the world. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God has a purpose. God had a predetermined plan. And praise God that we were part of that predetermined plan, right? Again, we don't know who the elect are until God saves them. And even in that aspect of it, we don't always know because we need some time. Because if you take Matthew 13, the conditions of the soils in the parable of the sower. Remember, he was sowing seed and it fell on different kinds or different conditions of ground, uh, which would determine whether it would grow or not. And then he applied that to the heart in the reception of the gospel. Not everybody receives the gospel. Not only everybody hears it the same way. It's only the one who, as the text says, understands it. Then they're born again. And God is the one who has to open up your understanding. And part of opening up your understanding is opening up your will. He makes you willing to come to Him. It's all the work of God. The third teaching that came from this 
not only total depravity and unconditional election, but limited atonement. There are a lot of people that they're okay with four of the five points, and this is one they're usually not okay with. Limiting the atonement only to the elect. Saying that Jesus only died for those he would save. That actually makes a lot of sense when you put it that way, though, doesn't it? Would Jesus die for unbelievers that would never be saved? We have indicator in Scripture that he died only for his people. He died only for the elect. He paid only for their sins. Again, Piper says, The atonement applies to the elect in a unique, particular way, although the death of Christ is sufficient to propitiate the sins of the whole world, but the death of Christ effectually accomplished the salvation of all of God's people. In other words, limited atonement means that Christ died especially for the elect, paid a definite price for them that guaranteed their salvation. You're still in Ephesians. Look down at verse 7. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Notice the we. Who's the we? It says, we have redemption. Who's the us, which He's lavished on us? Well, contextually, we have a context. Go back to verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that the we and the us are the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. They are, according to verse 3, those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. They are those, according to verse 4, whom God chose for Himself before the foundation of the world. They are those, according to verse 5, who have been predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So the we and us is referring to them. Scripture teaches that Jesus died for His people. You remember in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him what to name the child? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen to this phrase. For he will save his people from their sins. His people. Who are his people? The elect. In Matthew 26, 28, when they were sharing in the Lord's Supper, Jesus said this, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Didn't say all. Many for the forgiveness of sins. Over in John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you go down to verse 15, he says, Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? Well, if you look at John 10, 24, it says, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because what? You are not my sheep. Sheep are believers. In fact, they refer to unbelievers as goats. But he goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. 
and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my, my hand and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus died for his people. He secured their salvation. He secured the redemption for his people. In John 17, 9, in that high priestly prayer, he says that I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So in other words, God has not given every single individual in the world to Christ, but only select ones that he has given to Christ whom he would save. Here's your verse from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 12. It says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many, many, not all, and interceded for the transgressors, not all transgressors, but many of them. How about Matthew 7 when it talks about entering through the narrow gate and it says there are few who find it. But when it talks about the gate that leads to destruction, it says many find that way. I mean, it's very clear and you know this. Not everyone is going to heaven. But yet, everyone thinks they are. I was thinking about this this past week and it just hit me like a ton of bricks when someone tells you that they do believe what you're sharing with them but yet they don't have any evidence of it in their life what's the evidence if you truly believe you'll love and obey right love and obedience is the evidence you know it was W.E. Vine in his expository dictionary of biblical words gave this definition for the Greek word pistis which is the word faith He says, the only evidence that we have that we believe God is by our obedience. I mean, that's just like James in James 2, talking about faith without works is dead. There are people out there that are proclaiming a faith, but they have no life to back it up. So we have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. The next one is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. This is the work of the Spirit in changing the entire nature of the person. Paul ends, says, Irresistible grace, the supernatural work of God, wherein he works in the soul of the individual, changing the entire nature by the Holy Spirit's operation, and makes the individual willing to come. Louis Burkhoff adds to this by saying, by changing the heart, it makes man perfectly willing to accept Jesus Christ unto salvation and to yield obedience to the will of God. So it's the Holy Spirit who intervenes in man's heart and sovereignly gives him the new birth, as well as faith and repentance. And he doesn't resist. Apart from this intervention, he resists. This is really the work of all three members of the Trinity. Think of it in this way. The Father gives, 
the individual to Jesus, and they come to him. And Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. They didn't say anything about resisting. See, the Father draws the individual to Christ. It says in John 6, 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He doesn't say some people can come to him. He says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if you understand by starting with total depravity that man is dead in trespasses and sins, this makes perfectly, perfect sense. Even verse 45 says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How can you hear and how can you learn from the Father unless He draws you? How can you even come unless He regenerates you? There has to be a, a new birth take place. So there's no resistance when the Father draws or when they've heard and learned from the Father, they come to Christ. Verse 63 tells us how this happens. I don't know if you're following me in John 6, but verse 63 tells us it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. It's done by the quickening work of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 63, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So they come because God's drawing them. They come because they have heard and learned from the Father. They come because the Spirit gives them life. They come because verse 65 says He grants it to them to come. He says, And for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. R.C. Sproul says, To be born again is to experience a second genesis. It's a new beginning, a fresh start in life. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit is a change. It's a radical change into a new kind of being. To be regenerated does not mean that we are changed from a human being into a divine being. It does mean that we are changed from spiritually dead human beings into spiritually alive human beings. Spiritually dead persons are incapable of seeing the kingdom of God. It's invisible to them, not because the kingdom itself is invisible, but because the spiritually dead are also spiritually blind. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. What's the last one? Perseverance of the saints. And there are two ways to look at perseverance. First, God preserves the elect. God preserves Christians. God preserves those he saves. 1 Peter 1, 3 and following tells us basically in verse 5 that we're kept by the power of God for salvation to be revealed at the last time. Who's keeping us? God is. John 6, 39, Jesus said, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given to me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up at the last day. Verse 44, He says it again, I will raise Him up at the last day. That's being preserved by God. And again, I remind you of the passage we heard in John 10, 
My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Why? Because we're kept by the power of God. Our our salvation is eternally secure. Have you ever thought about the ridiculousness of the concept that you could lose it? Have you ever pondered that for just a moment of what all would have to happen if you could lose it? You would have to revert back to a state of spiritual deadness. You don't have any example of that going on in the Bible, do you? Of anybody returning back to his place of spiritual deadness? We see people doing things emulative of the old life. You take Peter, for example. He denied the Lord three times. But don't study that. Study his response from that. What did he do after he did it the third time? He went out and wept bitterly. Right? You compare that to Judas. Judas wasn't a true disciple of Christ. He wasn't a believer in Christ. He was a traitor. And in his sorrow, what did he do? He went out and hung himself. He killed himself. They will never perish. Never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You are secure because you're kept by God. You're kept by Christ. You're kept by the Spirit. In John 17, 12, going back to the high priestly prayer, Jesus said, while I was with them, speaking of his disciples, I was keeping them in your name which you've given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The only one that perished was Judas, and he never was a child of God. I think that there were invitations for him to become one, especially in that last betrayal, when he went up and kissed Christ to identify him to the soldiers that this is the one that they needed to seize. You remember what Jesus said? Do you betray me with a kiss? In fact, before he even said that, he said, Why have you come? Wasn't that an invitation? But Satan had already entered the heart of Judas. So that's the, that's the first aspect. That's the first side of the coin where God preserves you. The second side of the coin is where God causes you to persevere in faith and obedience all the way to the end so that none are continually backslidden and none are finally lost. In other words, you persevere until the end because God preserves you to the end. Roy Gingrich, in his book on the perseverance of the saints, he says the first of the post-apostolic church fathers to explicitly teach this doctrine was Augustine. But he taught it in a modified form. He taught that some believers are elect believers and that others are non-elect believers and that elect believers cannot fall from grace but that non-elect believers can sometimes do fall from grace. That was a strange teaching. The Roman Catholic Church, he says, refused to follow the teaching of Augustine on this point of doctrine, and they denied the doctrine of perseverance of the saints throughout all the Middle Ages. It was actually the Protestant reformers who restored this doctrine to the church, but they did so contrary to the teaching of Augustine. 
They taught that all true believers are elect believers and that all true believers persevere until they are finally and fully saved. Not that there are some elect believers and some non-elect believers. It doesn't describe believers as non-elect. It always describes them as elect, chosen by God. Sad that the Lutheran church soon turned from the doctrine, as well as many other Reformed churches, and they chose to follow the new Armenian system of theology. It was actually only the Calvinistic churches continue to believe and teach this doctrine, and even today it's believed and taught only by Calvinistic churches. But the Bible teaches perseverance. Write down these verses, Hebrews 6, 36 and following, 36 to 39. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. We are those who do not shrink back. Here's another verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, which also you, in which you stand, by which also you were saved, here it is. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And the term hold fast, the two words, is one word in Greek. It occurs in the present tense, which means that you are continuing to hold fast. It's an ongoing act of the will. You constantly hold fast to the gospel that Paul preached. And if you don't, he says, you believed in vain, which means you're lost. John 8, 31, Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Colossians 1, 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, Engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister." See the phrase, if you hold fast? So, beloved, I refer to these five teachings here as being biblical. We see it in Scripture. But yet I also affirm that this was not a system that John Calvin put together. This was much later. And 102 years after the Reformation... So I would say that I'm Reformed because it's biblical. It's biblical. I believe that the five points, all five of them are biblical. But I also am Reformed because it preaches the true gospel. 
I believe the true gospel is seen in the five points, the five solas. I believe it's seen in the five points of Calvinism as well. But take the five solas. We're saved by grace alone. You believe that, right? Through faith alone. You believe that, right? In Christ alone. You believe that? According to Scripture alone. That's where we get the authority from. That's where we get the information. And it's for the glory of God alone. God gets glory in this the way He has done it. If we had a means of boasting about our salvation, who would get the glory? We would get the glory. God wouldn't get the glory. Let me point out all five of these. This will go very quick. You have Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, and by the way, we've been teaching on this the whole month, so I'm not going to say a whole lot about these, because it was resident in Wycliffe's work, it was resident in Huss's work, certainly resident in Luther's work. Even though that the terminology didn't come about till later, as I said, there were three of them that Luther referred to during his time. But sola scriptura, scripture alone, it emphasizes that the Bible alone is the source of authority. As Luther later said, this is the only thing that can bind the conscience. There are other things out there that have a weight on our conscience, but it's the scripture that binds it. It's the scripture that not only informs it, but it is the scripture that affirms it. And so when we say Scripture alone, the Reformers had rejected both the divine authority of the Roman Catholic Pope and confidence in any of their traditions. See, they were always, here's your salvation. It's Christ plus, and then whatever else would fill in. It could be the keeping of the Ten Commandments. It could be the worship of saints. It could be Mary. I mean, it's a host of other things. It could be the church. Christ plus the church, faith plus the church. Only the Bible was inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16. And it's God-breathed. Anything taught by the Pope or in tradition that contradicted the Bible was to be rejected. Did you know that Sola Scriptura fueled the translation of the Bible in German, French, English, and other languages? It also prompted Bible teaching in the common languages of the day rather than in Latin. We have much to thank the Reformers for. You're sitting in here and you have a Bible in English and it's not in Latin. Anybody here read Latin? I didn't think so. The second solo is sola gratia. Again, these are Latin terms. Sola means alone. And this emphasizes grace as the reason for our salvation. In other words, salvation comes from what God has done rather than what we do. And probably the flagship passage on this is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by grace through faith. Again, it's not faith plus or grace plus. The third sola, and we spent some time last week talking about this one, was sola fide. Sola fide, faith alone. 
That's emphasizing that salvation is a free gift. And the Roman Catholic Church, during that time, would emphasize the use of indulgences to buy their status with God. They were buying their way into heaven. But good works and baptism, they looked at this as something they required for salvation. But it's a free gift. It's not based on something that you can do. It's based upon what Christ has done. It's not based on human effort or good deeds. It's based upon the divine work of Christ. The fourth solo is sola Christos, Christ alone. It's only through Christ alone. That's telling us that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's telling us... What Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The Roman Catholic tradition had placed church leaders, such as priests, in the role of intercessor between the lady and God. And they had to come to an intercessor, a human intercessor, in order to approach God. And the only human intercessor, the only mediator, as Scripture tells us, is Jesus, not a priest. In fact, when it talks about a priesthood, it says that we are a kingdom of priesthood. So the reformers emphasized Jesus' role as the high priest who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. It says in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the one who offers access to God, not a human spiritual leader. And then the fifth and the last sola is sola Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. This emphasizes His glory in salvation. It emphasizes His glory in our life. And rather than striving to please church leaders or to keep a list of rules or guard your own interests, Our goal is to glorify the Lord. The idea of sola Deo Gloria is found in 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. And that really describes our life now, doesn't it? So the five solas here of the Protestant Reformation, they actually offer a strong corrective to the faulty practices and beliefs of the time. And they are relevant today. We are called to focus on Scripture, to accept salvation by grace through faith, to magnify Christ, to live for God's glory. Is your life consumed with Scripture? I mean, again, I remind you that these pre-reformers and reformers gave their life so that you and I could have the Bible in English, and they gave their life for these truths that were taught in the Bible. Are you willing to do that too? There are a lot of people out there that don't believe this. There are a lot of Protestant churches that don't believe this. I believe that since God has magnified His Word above His name, we ought to magnify Scripture in our life by constantly being saturated by it. Every day, you should be saturating your mind with Scripture. This should be your your passion as a child of God. And if it's not, then maybe you're not a child of God. 
Maybe you haven't been saved. And you need to be saved today. You know, there are two types of call in the Scripture. There's the general call that goes out to everybody, and then there's the effectual call that describes what we've been talking about here this morning. We give that general call to everybody. The call goes out. You need to repent. You need to believe in Christ. You need to come to Him and Him alone for salvation. But the only ones who come are those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world to come. That's it. If you're here today without Christ, I want to give that call, that general call for you to come to Him. Come to Him. Turn from yourself. Turn from your sin. Turn from Satan. And come to Christ, who alone has provided forgiveness for your sin, who alone gives eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is only through Christ. So, beloved, I know we went through these pretty quick. What I just shared with you usually takes me many weeks to cover. But that's what came from the Reformation. That's what we have to thank the Reformers for, to return to Scripture. And out of the Scripture to develop your theology, not by tradition, not by human ingenuity, And to affirm that salvation is all of God. So beloved, is He making you willing this morning? If you're here today without Christ, is He making you willing to come to Him? You feel that pull, feel that tug? There's nothing I can say or do that would stop you from coming. Praise God, right? It's not on me. It's not on some terms that I can come up with. But I will say this, if you don't come, John 3.18 says, you're currently under the condemnation of God. You're under the wrath of God. And if there's ever a good reason to come, it is to flee the wrath that is to come. Not coming just so you can have a good life. Some of us could argue in here that the life we had before was pretty good. This is the best, right? And there's yet more to come. I praise God for that. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for what we heard. Pray for each of us that we go back through these Ten points, just so that we too can see them in Scripture. I've tried to do that today, and I know it's somewhat limited with moving through this much information in such a short period of time. Lord, we commend all of this to your Spirit, who is the resonant teacher. And my prayer is for everyone in here that everyone in here is saved, everyone in here has trusted you 
Everyone in here is a follower of Jesus. And if anyone is not, Lord, that you would save them right now. You'd bring them into your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name.